There are certain skills, critical skills, that you need, that we all need, not only to get ahead in our lives, but also to ensure a successful path forward for our children and for the survival of our constitutional republic. You're listening to All About Skills, where we discuss the eight critical skills you need to succeed and how CEOs, placement directors, executive recruiters, and career-minded individuals utilize them to propel themselves to a higher level of understanding and achievement. Get ready to learn, master, and excel with your host, Charlie Jett. Thank you, Anne, and welcome to It's All About Skills. This is a series of programs where we discuss the critical skills and their application in the real world. My name is Charlie Jett, and we're coming to you from our studio in beautiful downtown Chicago. I'm an internationally certified coach, and I specialize in career management, skill development, and career crises. And we have a wonderful and very special guest today, Dr. Arthur Zimiga. Dr. Arthur Zimiga, a master and doctorate graduate from the Graduate School of Education at Harvard University, is known nationally and worldwide as a top Native American educator. Dr. Zimiga has presented curriculum material and has lectured on such subjects as Native American education and business development for the cultural different. Institution where he has either taught or lectured, including foreign educational agencies and major universities in the United States that include Harvard University, UCLA, the University of Arizona, the University of South Dakota, and many others. Now, Dr. Zimiga has an extensive background in Native American cultures, and he specializes in the Lakota culture He's a member of the Ogallala Lakota Teton Nation. He's well-respected by his fellow colleagues in business development, higher learning, as well as elementary and secondary education worldwide. His humor and can-do attitude are refreshing attributes that audiences often enjoy. Dr. Zimiga is a poet, a writer, soldier, artist, spokesman, executive, business developer, politician, educator, community leader, and a family-oriented person. He is also my friend. We were elementary school classmates in Hot Springs, South Dakota, and might I say that that was over 70 years ago. Dr. Zimiga brings insights that enlighten audiences so you are on for a great surprise with Dr. Arthur Zimiga. With that, how cola, Art, to It's All About Skills. How cola. How uh, cola. Hey, to start, let's go back a few years. I mean, few being capitalized, of course, because it's been a while. But tell us about where you grew up and the lessons you learned about skills? Well, I think the first skills that uh, I learned about was probably when I went to, started to school, you know, from a very young age. Uh, I think that it was, uh, I seen other, I looked at many kinds of skills that other people had and I always wanted to see 
you know, compare mine with theirs to see what I could do. You know, I could I could be just as uh, competitive or just as uh, relevant in in in, in uh, learning those skills. And so that's kind of where I started. Uh, when when I say that by being bi bicultural is that there was the philosophy within within learning that came from my background as a Native American, but also as a Ogallala Lakota uh, individual or person. So those skills have always been uh, something that I have been life learning uh, from our days in elementary schools uh, to high school, even within college, in our experiences, uh, to reach you know the age that we have, it's been a lifelong learning process. As we have, I think, is what we call generational change, due to many things, but mostly to the technology that itself changes us because we have to learn how to adapt. And I think that's one of the best skills you can learn is to be, to adapt. And the other is uh, also entrusting, being trusting in, uh, in working with people and trusting in believing in those that uh, are your teachers or those people that are your mentors? You so, met, you know, you 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 went to uh, Hot Springs Elementary School, and as we were classmates in the third, fourth, and fifth grade, I think, and then you went on to uh, Provo Igloo High School, where you graduated uh, at the same year I think that I did in 1959, and yes. After that, uh, Art, uh, tell us about your college experiences. You know, what was your major and what were some of the non-academic skills that you learned from those experiences? Well, when I, when I was asked to go to college, I had no idea that I would ever go. But there was a guy, his name is John Artichoker, who was a Native American and a relative of mine that was uh, recruiting students. What I like to do was to rodeo. Rodeo? And yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed that. I had participated in, in, in sports before, but uh, that was something about it that uh, I enjoyed. But when I, so finally, he came to our house and I met with my father and they talked and my father said, he said, uh, would you like to go to college? And I had no idea what it was about. I knew that uh, some of my classmates were all leaving, but I thought about, well, maybe I could, you know, find, I knew I would probably be working someplace, but then I can enjoy uh, being that young enough to, be in rodeo, but I went to the University of South Dakota. And when I got there, 
I had, uh, I remember, I must have looked like something from uh, the movie lot in Hollywood. Because <laughs> I, I had this Western hat on, uh, Stetson on, and I walked there, had boots on, and I wondered, someone asked me that question, what is your major? And I said, nah, I don't know what you mean as major. Well, what are you going to study? And I said, I really don't know. Well, the counselor said, well, you can just take like required courses first and then think about it. So that's what I did. And uh, so pretty soon I was, you know, I took those general courses in English and then uh, also in uh, uh, as far as chemistry and some biology and those general courses that you need to graduate. And so I found it uh, interesting that everybody probably from East River kind of looked on us West River uh, people as a little bit strange, you know, because we did, we weren't uh, ready for fraternities or sororities in uh, our, uh, they said, which one they were, would you like to be a part of? And I, I said, well, I have to think about that. <laughs> but I remember your, your, uh, your sister went, was there. She was, uh, she, she was, was at the same time. Yeah, and so there was a number of us from West River that were there, and I think your your uh, your brother-in-law was also there. Yeah, absolutely. And and so we had our own little group that would run into one another and talk with one another in the, in the student union. And I asked them that question: Well, how do you feel, you know, being here? Well, they said it is quite different. It's really a learning thing, you know, uh, because uh, as a freshman, you really don't know anything. You know, you just, it's a whole new environment. Yeah. But I think that was a bridge uh, that I learned because I had a connection. I had a connection from many people from West River and a number of Native Americans that were attending there that were from the various reservations. And uh, I think that John, uh, later on in life, he said, I handpicked every one of them because I wanted to make sure that, uh, that it was successful. And so he said that so we could recruit more Native American students. Yeah. So, you know, that's what I think that, uh, and then I met a variety of uh, different people that were there. I took part in... I was going to play football and because I liked football and I liked basketball. But during Thanksgiving in uh, 1960, uh, or in that period of time, all right, I was in a, just when we, we started to practice, I was in a car wreck. And it, I busted my clavicle, and so it it threw me out of the game of uh, playing football. 
But then, but I used to, we had the independent team and it was made up of mostly people from uh, West River and, and the various uh, Native American people that had been in sports. And so, you know, we got to have a whole feel of being in competitiveness. And so after a while, we got together and I was ahead of what they called the Wapaha, Ikiki, uh, Wapaha Club, which was the, uh, you, it's the headdress, the war bond headdress. And I was selected as their president. Holy cow. And so I didn't know what, my, my limit as far as Lakota language was very limited. And so, and many of the students that I associated with that were Native American students, uh, they also uh, had very limited experience because of their past experiences at, uh, at, in schools, whether they were on or off the reservation or if they were private or if they were uh, boarding schools or public schools. So the language was really, you learn from your, your parents, which my mother and father were fluent in Lakota. And so I was too busy doing things and not in the environment of other than using uh, some Lakota words to be a real fluent speaker. And so, but uh, that all changed. You know, I mean, uh, through my contact with some of the students that were there that were Native Americans, uh, they, they were the ones that helped me to teach me some, teach me Lakota language. Wow. Which you was know, a, you know, Art, Art, it sounds like when your, your experience uh, at the university was one that you assimilated yourself into a community as a citizen. In, uh, is that right? Rather than just pure academics, it was an education in being a citizen within a community. Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, uh, from coaches to uh, like Boots Stewart was a coach, a, a football coach, and Dan Lenning was a track coach. Uh, uh, there was, uh, there was, some of the people that I met that were interested in rodeo. Matter of fact, we started the first rodeo club at the University of South Dakota. Yeah, I did not know that. <laughs> and, uh, but I think that was the meeting. At least we had a new meeting ground because it was all the same, pretty much the same for all of us that came. When I talk about West River, I mean, People probably listening to this say, what's West River? Well, that's Western South Dakota, where, you know, the cowboys and the Indians and the, and the miners, and it's such a mix. Whereas in the east, eastern part, it was uh, pretty much, you know, uh, you had to be a real dapper Dan or, you know, uh, very conscious about what you, yeah, what you were wearing, but uh, we seemed to change that later on because uh, people were very interested in 
what was it like to be from West River? And I think that we all from West River would meet with once in a while someplace because we we all got a little bit of homes, you know, homesick, you know, uh, being the first probably a number of us, you know, uh, going to a college uh, in, in the eastern part of South Dakota. Well, you know, Art, I, I think a lot of our listeners would probably uh, resonate with the fact that you're talking about the country that was Dances with Wolves. Yes. You know, they, they resonate with the movie Dances with Wolves, and that's Western South Dakota. Well, and really, it that part of uh, just the history itself wasn't very, you know, is was very young then. I mean, you think in 1959 and there, it wasn't, you know, 18, the 1868 treaty, or the 1851 treaty, from that time to that time was probably about around, you know, 40 some years, you know, we, and so there was various ideas what, uh, what people were like. I mean, whatever was being taught uh, uh, about Western South Dakota, but you still had people here that truly were uh, their frontier people. They were oh, yeah. a, a number of people that were been exposed to the Dawes Act or the Homestead Act. And a lot of them were just thrown out there. Here's some land, you know, you develop it. And, and I remember my family, uh, uh, there was like Blair's uh, that lived down by Martin, South Dakota and a little, and uh, several years later, one of the, he ran the Chevy garage there. He said, if it wasn't for your grandfather, we would have starved to death. Yeah. He said, we didn't, we didn't look at it as, we looked at it one another as neighbors because they helped us. Yeah. They helped us to, when we were there, the, I remember your uncles bringing uh, a cow over or uh, some beef uh, over and said, here, and they shared uh, their, uh, their garden and things like that. So that sharing and entrusting with one another was a big part of that because uh, the goodness comes out of uh, a number of people when you, you know, get to a point that you depend upon one another. Well, hey, Art, now you're this kid who was exposed to the university experience in South Dakota and you're a you're a, you're a member of the Oglala Dakota Teton Nation, and all of a sudden you wind up on the west or on the east coast at Harvard University. Now, how did that happen anyway? I mean, there's this kid from Western South Dakota, and all of a sudden you're in Boston. Well, I think, Charlie, all those kind of circumstances, they were just, I didn't really plan them, they just happened. You made you know, them happen, though, Art. You made them happen. Yeah, I think that they, they, there was there was another person. His name was Dr. Jim Wilson. He was from uh, 
Pine Ridge, also a tribal member of the Ogallala Sioux tribe. And he was working for, uh, at the time, in Washington, D.C. And he asked the question uh, of uh, the people he was working. He says, why don't you recruit, why can't we recruit Native American students to the Ivy League schools? Mm -hmm. And he said, you've done it, you know, throughout the world. And I'd like to do that. So uh, it started off uh, with his, is a kind of office of economical opportunities that was happening with other minorities in the United States. And he started that program. So he, he, I was encouraged to say, why don't you try it? So after I, I had already been in the service and I didn't know if I wanted to or not. I had the, uh, but I, uh, with the help of uh, uh, a fellow uh, tribal member from Standing Rock, her name was Pat Locke. Mm -hmm. She said, all right, why don't you fill this out and, and we'll send it in. And at that time I was at UCLA and uh, we started a program called High Potential for Native Americans. I had finished uh, a BA in, uh, in psychology and in sociology. I do. And so then when I ended up at UCLA, I was going to go into clinical uh, psychology because I wanted to know who I was after the Vietnam experience. I wanted to know uh, what was this? And so I finished at Sioux Falls, uh, at the time college, and now it's a university. And, uh, and so they gave me this opportunity. So I was there and she said, fill it out. She said, you'd do well. I said, well, Pat, I'm, I kind of like it right here. <laughs> she said, well, we went down to the village and she said, let's go have lunch. And she was persistent. We, get, we got there at the, down in the village at UCLA and she, and she uh, pulled out this application and said, okay, uh, the, you have so much experience with the reservation, with native communities, which many people do not have that are a Native American. She said, most of us have been relocated uh, years before off the reservations to the cities. But you have the background and you know of the circumstances there. And if you want to help, it would be great, a great help to Native people if you'd go. So I'm going to ask you some questions. So like you're doing, Charlie, I, I don't know if I should continue because if you ask me questions, you know, I might move or do something. Well, I know. I want, I, want to get you, I want to get you in Boston, okay? So all of a sudden, Art Zimiga, my fourth grade buddy, is all of a sudden at Harvard University. I mean, what's going on here anyway? 
Well, that program that Jim started, he recruited Native American students to go there. And we were in Reed House that was up on, in, uh, in, uh, which was a Native American uh, center that he, he started. He also started it for, uh, for the law school and the medical school. And uh, I, I think sometimes we crossed over, uh, over into the business school you know, to look at some of what was really happening. Uh, and, and that was very interesting to me. But I think the important thing was that it threw me into a whole new concept of American education. You know, that's where, it, or that's, that's where you develop your passion for education, I guess. Is oh, yes. Right? Absolutely. And you went on and you got your master's and your doctorate. Yes, my my doctorate was a educationaire. The French used to have that type of degree, where you would cross over into other subject areas, like uh, it would be administration, it would be uh, teaching, it'd be curriculum development, and they called it learning environments. Mm -hmm. And so I would cross over into, I could cross over into the business school uh, uh, within some of those classes and, and glean from that, uh, the Kennedy School of Administration and even MIT to, I was fascinated by the whole idea of what was coming out of MIT. And we started, uh, uh, MIT also had one portion, part of it was for Native Americans. Mm -hmm. So it was really a freewheeling opportunity, you know, to uh, how to focus on what was the important parts of education. And you, and you, you, you developed that passion. And when you, so you became an educator, you know, and, and you know, tell us a little bit about that that passion and after your experiences in Boston, which were phenomenal, uh, some of your experiences in teaching and educational administration, and you were in an administrative position for the state of South Dakota, and you taught at the University of South Dakota, you lectured at Harvard, Oglala Lakota College, UCLA, I mean, you were all over the place. Tell us a little bit about that, Art. Well, I think that the, the important part of it is all of learning is that you have to have a passion. If you're going to do business, it isn't you need a college degree. It, what you need to have is, uh, you know, the ability to do some math to probably the other part is to uh, be able to read and comprehend and use what's available. But most of all, you have to have a passion to succeed, to succeed. And I think that's where it was. What was in that that drives someone to succeed was within you because you, you see the opportunity for others. 
I think that's that. Yeah, I seen that opportunity that wasn't available to Native American people. But here I had the opportunity and I wanted to know and I wanted to bring those skills to uh, the reservations and into, into communities, Native American communities. And so those were the, that was the, the passion. I think passion is, a, is, is something in a burning desire. You have to have a burning desire to succeed because there's so many times that you wonder, and I sat there and wondered, why am I doing this? You know, to, to go through all the lists and book lists and read other, uh, on a reading list and, and directing uh, some of these programs that, and working with, with students. And the, the, I taught as a teaching fellow at Harvard for a couple of years with undergraduates. And I think that was really opening to me to realize that the very affluent people within themselves really didn't have any other concepts of that of Native Americans were, are, were still alive. They were still caught up into uh, their concepts of what uh, this United States was. And I think I brought that to them uh, in, as undergraduates and also to graduate students. I would teach at night, uh, night courses. And so people would come into the class. And I found that, that people were truly interested in what the roots of their education was related to Native Americans. And so I think that was the thing. It was a, uh, because some of the things that would come out and the questions would come out and I was just saying, well, that's, you know what America is, is unique is because I said, if you read in literature, you, you read about all the literature written about Native American people, but how, how many times have we read something that was written by Native American people themselves? And so I found that, that you have to have that. You have to have some way of burning desires to succeed. I've seen uh, non-Native people, many of them, uh, I would, I would say, let me say a small handful of them that would, you know, either they were forced to continue their education by their families or they were, uh, you know, they themselves wanted to do something with their lives to further the, the betterment of, uh, of, the, of America. Well, you bet, Mark, and you, you know, with all of this experience that you had of this phenomenal educational background with the ability to experience the Harvard experience and uh, teach there and teach other places, uh, you were really equipped to influence education everywhere, 
And you had some experience uh, in administration and education in the state of South Dakota, as I recall. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. Well, I was a commissioner of Indian Affairs for the state of South Dakota. And in that, I had a number of uh, people like uh, George Mickelson, who became the governor, and probably I've probably served about five different gov governors in the state because we were looking at how we could look at giving opportunities to Native American people to really be, as you say, skill builders. You know, I think that. Uh, that was within many of the, the thoughts that were, were going on. And, and I found out that, uh, like, for example, you, sometimes you just propose things and you start working on them, and they, it's the power of one, yeah. but to yeah. get other people to assist in it that believe in it, it doesn't take a whole uh, total agreement to do anything, but once people understand and they trust in what's going on, you know, they, uh, they'll come aboard and they're reasonable people. And I think that's the important part that I learned. And I visited many of the different counties in South Dakota, uh, that, uh, with some of the concerns that they may have about Native Americans, because yeah. uh, it was a direct uh, relationship. But they, through the politics and through probably realizing that Native American people with nine reservations and a large landmass, that the, it, it had lot of impact on the state of South Dakota, which truly wasn't a, is not a really wealthy uh, state because of the lack of not land, but of the resources of people. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, and so a lot of the, the very well-educated people from, I mean, uh, people from South Dakota that went to the colleges Eventually, they left. They went like Charlie Jed did, you know, to someplace in the east. You know, they they fulfilled their educational and needs, and probably they had the same kinds of feelings. What am I doing here? Yeah, you know, just being a, a, someone from a small town in South Dakota. But I found that that. Many people, it was always a teaching process. It, uh, a lot of times I had opportunities just to probably sit down and talk with somebody and saying, well, how do, how do we get from here to there? How do we work out different things together? You know, we can't do anything about really uh, the past in looking at the past, but we can learn from it. And what can we do to improve it? And how are you and, you and I uh, a part of that? 
And so I, I found that there are some people, you know, they're just locked into where there's there's small communities, there's small rural communities. All the differences that they found in their small communities, they would tell me stories about the variances uh, between farmers and, and ranchers and uh, the small towns itself with their ethnicities. This was uh, part of it was what church was a, a Catholic church, was a, a, the Lutherans. And so they had these questions and, and I said, that's, that's, that's it. We're all looking to find out what it is where we're at and it's education. Oh yeah. Education yeah. is the key. Oh, and Art, you know, you, you talk about South Dakota and it's a, it's a sad fact that over a quarter of the top 25 poorest countries or counties in the United States are in the state of South Dakota. You know, the residents of these counties are primarily members of the tribal nations and include such reservations as Cheyenne River, Crow Creek, Pine Ridge, Rosebud, and Standing Rock. And it's particularly sad that most of the other poorest counties in the United States are those containing prisons or correctional facilities. Now, what are your thoughts about the causes of this situation and what might be necessary to correct what I think both of us consider to be extraordinarily un-American conditions? Well, I think first of all, uh, it goes back to many of the times to these treaties that were made from nation to nation that these were written words uh, given to one another in the same constitution that we all live under. That I think it's Article 10 of the United States Constitution, and it says that uh, all treaties will be, you know, uh, recognized as part of uh, the law of the nation and were passed. In many of those times, I think it, it ends, ended up being a, a bureaucracy, not truly, it used to be that native people were truly capitalists. You know, they, they traded, they traded between one another, they traded, they had trading route areas, they traded with, uh, with immigrants and they traded with, uh, between one another. And I think that that was taken away that was taken away and governed by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And because my grandparents and them, they raised cattle, you know, some, some of them, you know, uh, worked for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Some, some also had their own businesses, but it was always somebody through bureaucracy that probably didn't even know what a Native American was. I mean, it was on paper that the policies, the policies that came out from politicians wasn't, uh, the Native people had no trust in them. It is because what happened was that uh, 
they would have someone they had a bank and if you could if you if you had over if you had an amount of money in the bank let's say 250,000 or 300,000 at that time you would have to go and ask some bureaucrat that didn't have that kind of money from uh, as being a bureaucrat and he'd say well no you can't spend your money there you had to go to see somebody else and it was really a, became a really a socialistic uh, society of governance by bureaucrats. You know, I tell you, uh, I, I agree with you, and and uh, particularly about how the United States government has treated Native Americans, because over the years the government has made many promises, signed treaties, and otherwise made commitments to the Lakota, Dakota, and Dakota nations. And many of these treaties and commitments were broken over the years because of a lot of different factors, including, for example, the discovery of gold in the Black Hills of South Dakota, or they are Heisapa. And uh, you know, tell us a little bit about those broken commitments and how greed and corruption generates positive, uh, poverty, both physically and mentally. Well, I think that the, if you look at the first treaty that 18... Uh, 51 treaty. That was an agreement that was made that uh, the Lakota, Dakota, Nakota nations would not war against other tribes, that there was an agreement uh, for them to, they had their area and Lakota people would have their area and they signed, and they signed that. And for doing that, the federal government said, this land will be yours in perpetuity, you know, as long as the grass grows and the water flows and the sun shines <laughs> and the sun shines, you know. And so that was the the comment. But as as you start looking within history, and there was a, a time after the Civil War, the Lakotas couldn't understand why a nation, United, United States, was a nation against brothers. You know, they, they say, why are they fighting their brothers? Why yeah. are they killing one another? And so after the Civil War, there was a, a great need because of the, the economy of the United States was uh, dismal. I mean, today we're experiencing some of those things. But it was dismal. So where did they have to go? You know, they had uh, they had people, and so all of a sudden, the cities were packed with uh, people. There was no expansion, and so only a place where people would go was west. And in doing that, they had to make decisions, good, bad, or indifferent. They made some decisions. And in those decisions, they created policies. And one of those policies that's just, that affected many Native American tribes throughout the United States was that they themselves, they needed to, because of the creation of these treaties and Native tribes and themselves, the Indian people needed it only was that 
the killing of the Indian, the idea of killing of the Indian and saving the child, you know, uh, to change or assimilate their, their uh, into what they described as, you know, into the white world. Mm -hmm. Well, and to, to Lakotas, that was a really Lakota philosophy wasn't based on race. It wasn't based on uh, on the whole idea of you know certain people in having these rights. It was pretty much based upon uh, the whole idea of a democracy uh, of of their confederacy with one another that made us stand strong. Art isn't that part of uh, isn't that part of of the Lakota truth. I mean, you have written about pride, character, and heritage related to citizenship as being part of Lakota truth. Is that what you're talking about, basically? Yes, yes. But I think it's also, that it has also happened to other people. Yeah. Not just all the people. But Lakota people, when they gave that up, I had a grandfather, and he was... Uh, a very outstanding leader, and his name is Wamini Yamini Aluzaha, and his you can look it look it up. His name was uh, Fast Whirlwind. He was the we call Itancha, uh, was the leader of the Wazazi people, and they, you don't hear about them because the federal government. And them, they call them the uh, the hostiles because they didn't, they wouldn't, they didn't live up to the 1851 treaty because they were being invaded uh, with uh, people heading west, and uh, they see the. They said they promised that uh, this land would be theirs. And all of a sudden, you see wagon trains of people coming through. And they were decimating the, the, the buffalo. They were decimating the, the grounds, you know, they, uh, by wagon trains. And, and there was a number of them that were the Mormons, for example, you know, came through. Uh, Lakota country, and they were running away from uh, from the outrage of being polygamist and looking for their place, for their beliefs. And Lakotas would think about that and they'd say, well, we're polygamists. I have more than one wife, would uh, Fast whirlwind would say, but he he was also a shirt wearer, and that mean he had a sh shirt that was made specially, and he was uh, a leader of many extended families or our uh, our communities, and so why I'm telling you that is that that's where the foundation came. And that I had another mother grandfather, his name was Elbridge Gary. Elbridge Gary came from Mass uh, uh, Massachusetts. He was 
supposedly, and you can look it up for him, he's in, in Colorado. He was uh, worked for an American fur company. He had his own trade. He had some of the largest uh, trader along the, uh, in near the Republican River in South Platte. Mm-hmm. And he, I met James Michener at, at Harvard, and I told him I was a, a grandson, the great grandson of Albridge Gary. And he, and I'd like to talk to him because he had written the book Centennial. And he said, well, after we have uh, uh, this Harvard punch upstairs, I'd like to visit with you. And he told me that that book, you see the Scotsman in that book was taken from the character of Albert Gary. Ah. And, and so our past in itself is that Albert Gary was accepted into as a tribal member. And he, and they called him uh, he, his, his name that with full membership as part of, uh, of the uh, Lakota nation. So he was, uh, they call him Ishtaska, uh, white eyes. That's a, he went by that Lakota. He was a fluent Lakota speaker because he was a trader. He traded uh, and those trade routes go up to Fort Laramie, up into other areas to the Arapaho and the Cheyennes. So he was that kind of man, but he had s- several uh, Lakota wives uh, as, as uh, being part of that, uh, that were given or uh, were given to, given to him because he was an important part of the trade that went on. Mm-hmm. And so we all come from some place and we're all going someplace. And I think that it is important to know that within history, that if we look at those things, that the lust for people just to survive, I think I see that today in my setting in the Black Hills. I can see people now in their covered wagons, they're coming to South Dakota and looking for a, a sanctuary from this pandemic and also a sanctuary or someplace where it's not overcrowded. They're looking to, again, at Native American lands. Oh, yeah. Where, you know, and they're, they're looking again to their resources. But that's, that's where I think within history, we look at why is those policies, they had a, Eisenhower had a termination policy. He wanted to terminate all the tribes. And they tried that. But then the states said, no, we can't do that. Especially in South Dakota, there's too many, too much impact on our economy. Because states, states, South Dakota, what do they pay in in taxes, federal taxes? Yeah. to the United States Treasury. You know, uh, they probably, for every dollar they spend, they probably get about 
you know, $55 back. Yeah. So yeah. you take a place like Chicago, what do they put in as far as the cost, you know, to other places, poorer states? And, and they're having a burden. And so in serving these governors, that was the question. The Bureau of Indian Affairs, that whole department in, in itself, uh, in Aberdeen, South Dakota, handles all these various tribes in this region, in the Aberdeen area. And that's in Montana, that's in Wyoming, and different places. So there's a lot of impact of Native American tribes that could really have a, uh, a economic impact in the development of the West, but they've been disenfranchised and disinherited from using their own resources. And so now we have corporations. These corporations, there's no family farms here. Mostly all the ranching and the farming is corporations. And some of those uh, probably wouldn't even fit if, uh, if the Supreme Court would look into those issues and look at the really the Dawes Act and they would say, you know, here are the requirements. Any abandoned uh, land should be reverted back to the, uh, to the nation to these nations. And there's been a lot of them. Yeah, Art, 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 you know, one of the things that I've been curious about, and uh, I've given some thought, you, you've written about conscious and unconscious biases in the United yes. States. You know, tell us a little bit about that and perhaps what you consider to be the main causes. Well, I think that we all have a mindset someplace as a very young in uh, understanding with the people that's around us. Yeah. I think it's very true that if you want to really know a person uh, themselves, you find out who, who their friends are. Because friendship really is a binding thing to us. And it's an, it, at first it's a conscious feeling that this person is, is helpful to you. You share those uh, times. But then there's the unconscious that you, you don't realize that it's, it's uh, uh, not there because you haven't had any experience with it. And I think that that unconscious feeling a lot of times creates the fear and the anger and the hate. And I think that's, that's uh, the biggest thing that we're afraid of. And, and to say that you hate something or you hate, that's, to me as a Lakota, that is, that unconscious thought reverts to, I don't like, white children or black children or I don't like. So it's that unconscious feeling. Yeah. And where do we get it? So we have, that's what I, I liked about certain groups of people. 
But I think today we need to think about that, the consciousness of what makes America what it is. What is that that we can easily use four-letter words to describe others and at the same time expect them to have less? Lakota people are not expecting more, more than what other people have. But why is the consciousness of this nation seem to be that they should expect less? I and that's where, that's as reasonable people, we need to look at that because as Native American veterans, we hold those oaths that we've taken to be a lifetime. You bet, Art. And, you know, with, in that regard, you know, what are some of the contemporary changes and how others can assist in perhaps creating equality and opportunities for the Native American people to be part of the changes that confront all American citizenry, citizenry you know, currently and in the near future? Some of the things that we can learn and do you know, I think by working together and sharing what we have in knowledge and experience and looking at what is, you know, let's not, let's cater to learning, you know, in a way of what is successful. What are those things, uh, what are the successful criteria or the steps you know let's let's cater to success not failures and that and that's really hard to uh in some ways because when you start thinking like that in that manner it's a positive reaction so when you see things that are uh, contrary to that you wonder why is this happening who who would you know, if who would and they travel throughout this world, where and you see the destitute of really many nations, but here in the United States, we have really some of these people that have that have immigrated. They have that lasting feeling that at last they have a choice. That choice is to utilize what skills or learn what skills they can to improve their quality of life. And I think it's important that we look at retraining. I mean, the military will take a 18-year-old or a person and put them in there and say, okay, we're going to train you. He doesn't know what he's going to be trained for, but he comes in and he, they test him out. And pretty soon, uh, you're going to be, you know, in the engineers, you're going to be uh, uh, a foot soldier, you're going to be or whatever branch of the service, but they train. They look at and they have a standard, the standard is saying, and, and, and you're all, and you're all the same all in the same thing because you're serving the greater good of a, of a society. Not, 
not to exploit that society, but to serve it. And I think we need to train more people in uh, providing those opportunities in rural areas. And Arda, that's part of your, your, your energy and passion today is to promote the training and the uh, accessibility to learning of skills uh, for young people for the future. Well, I think that it is a little bit, Charlie, it's a little bit more than that. I look at what, the, what is happening in this country today as far as environment. What, what are we, you know, uh, about where the world is and looking at uh, uh, the follies of the, 20, the 20th century. You know, uh, believing that these resources that we have would never end. You know, to, to exploit the environment you know, for our willing as, as two-legged, as human beings. When they, at the same time, by doing this, sometimes, sometimes less is better than more. You know, I, I, I believe that if we reasonably look at that, what can we use, how do we utilize our resources wisely? And I think that uh, those thinkers that we have, and a lot of brilliant young people looking at creating platforms uh, of technology to apply to a workforce, to let them be a part of this new, uh, new society that's being built. It's not going to go back, Charlie. Yeah. We yeah. have to be a part of the future. And I think as myself and others that I know, you know, we sat there and we, you know, I'm not, I want them to know that I appreciate their people for their services that they've given, but they did it under the same auspices as veterans. They served their communities. They were still there as elderlies today that social security, what are they going to do with it? They spent it on their grandchildren, or if they accumulate, you accumulate wealth, what do you do? Yeah. You don't want to, I think this nation, we need to get out of that, that whole idea of entertainment and having a desire to see that we are the leaders in looking at this uh, global, uh, warming that is taking place or environmental uh, conditions. Because, you know, 1% probably of the drinking water, <laughs> fresh water, 1% of it is within this, in the, in the, in the, in the, all the total amount of water and look at what we're doing to it. Yeah. You know, the thing is, but it, it, is it ours? But we can't hide. The America is not an ostrich. It is not their symbol. We have the American Eagle. We have uh, a dedication to, to our children and our grandchildren and our future generations to maintain 
that whole idea of the United States Constitution. And that's also relates to uh, the treaties that we, we have given. Just think about the amount of, of waste or that has gone into this total effort to create new nations throughout the world. I was in Jordan, I was in those parts of the world talking with uh, people of that influence. Those nations still look to America as those nations to help them out to, I guess, create something that they can look to. And so we see more people coming that are immigrating here because of oppression. And still at the same time, what are we doing educationally when we're probably throughout the United States, we were number one in the world. Now we're falling behind. I think we're about 15 or something within the world. But why isn't that? Let's look at some of the regional ways. And I think we need to train our people here. I certainly agree with you. I certainly agree with you, Art. But let me put you on the spot. And then, sure. uh, you know, as someone who is extraordinarily successful and exceptionally articulate, let's go back to that little town in South Dakota, Hot Springs, and uh, uh, the place where the Minicata and, uh, yeah. and uh, you are now uh, just wrapping up a discussion with the graduates of high school out there and giving them two or three pieces of advice. Uh, with all that wisdom and knowledge that you've accumulated over the years, the education, the experience and that sort of thing, uh, you're now summing up your, your graduation speech and you want to give them two or three pieces of advice for the future of this country and the future of them, what would those things be? I think the first thing I would say to them is that what do you want to do with this life that has been given to you? What do you want to do with it? How do you want to make a place? You're needed. You are the future. You, what would you like to be? It's so open. There is not anything that you can't think about that won't need you. You are the future. We have seen the past and have brought it to you. So you need to think about where you can give to the ideas that were given to you. The second thing I think is important to realize for yourself, that you have to be willing, you have to be open, you have to look at the changes that are around you. You have to look at those, your behavior, your your values, what are your values? And those values are very important. The value of one is learn from 
the values given to them. And not only through your parents or through your uh, past generations, but the values you see within your friends. You know, and I think that's important to realize that amongst you, there are some people that don't know where they want to be or where they want to go. But they have not sat down to say, you know what, if I'm going to do this, if I'm where I'm at, I want to be the best that I can be. Because I know that the person that I'm working for, he has those expectations of me. That's why I'm working there. He needs me. So I need to support the value that he or she shows me. And the third thing is that what part of this society that I'm part of do I contribute to? Do I contribute to the betterment of others or to, to the anguish of others? Those are things we have to look at because it's our behavior. Those things that everybody has 24 hours in a day. The President of the United States doesn't get 26 or 28. Neither does the Pope. Neither does any other uh, governing body. We all get 24 hours in a day to decide. What are we going to do within that day to look at to be a part of the society, the betterment of a society. And the third thing is, your, the fourth thing is your commitment. How strong is your commitment? Every day I, I see this flood of people going in there to serve the needs of their community. I see that every day these children are going to school. I call them the silent majority and they're depending upon you. And they're, and they're a society of people, young people that needs to be heard that needs to be inclu inclusiveness. So those are the four things are very things that all of us have. We have to decide because this is a God-given day that is given to us, it is given to all of us. And it is given to us in a fashion that has made America what it is. It can change. I believe that. I've seen it. After 81 years on this earth, and I was a boy, I would say, that rode in a covered, that rode in a wagon. And the only, and to see the roads that are now being made from an old dirt wagon road to new 
interstate highways and and we need to be a part of that we need to leave this world because this nation was built by all of us those who immigrated here and those that were here we need we know we share the experience we need to be together wow you know art uh, with that you know i would i would shake your hand and put my arm around you and whisper it, and whisper in your in in your ear hey j to yellow oh thank you hey j to yellow you know that is a blessing saying that's the way it is in Lakota. That's the way it is, my friend. So yeah. I want to, you know, I want to thank you so much, Art, uh, for not only being my friend for over 70 years, but for being our guest today on It's All About Skills. And you know, there's no word in the Lakota language for goodbye. <clears throat> so I will say, Doshake. Oh, yes. Doshake means to those listeners. In Lakota, there's never a goodbye until we meet again, until I see you again, either in this world or in the next. We will meet and we'll be there as friends together. And, we, and we will be there, Art. Now, as for me, uh, I want to thank Art, Art, uh, Dr. Art Simiga for being our guest. And as for me, I'm an internationally certified career coach and I specialize in career management skill development, positive intelligence, and career crises. And you can get in touch with me through my website, charliejetcoaching.com or podcastpq.com. And to all of you, I'll try it again, Art. Pilama yellow. Thank you, too. Pilama, yes. Thank you all for listening today, and we'll see you next time as we discuss the critical skills on It's All About Skills. Thank you for listening to this episode of All About Skills. To learn more information about the critical skills, be sure to visit itsallaboutskills.com for access to resources like blogs, field studies, published books, and more about how to learn, how to use, and how to teach this important content. That's exclusively available on itsallaboutskills.com. We look forward to having you join us on the next episode so we can continue to help you learn, master, and excel by using critical skills right here on All About Skills.